0: I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. The movie is Die Hard, which came out in 1988 and was directed by John McTiernan. It's a spectacular adventure of escape and rescue. It's towering. It's explosive. It's one night of blazing suspense. 40 stories high. Bruce Willis in Die Hard, rated R. It stars Bruce Willis, Alan Rickman, Reginald VelJohnson, Bonnie Bedelia, Alexander Gudinov, William Atherton, Hart Bachner, Paul Gleason, and Deborah White. The genre would be action thriller slash Christmas movie. What's there to say about Die Hard? What's there to say about this movie that hasn't already been said? It's a Christmas classic and so much more. There are so many firsts in this movie. This was the first big budget studio film to have a hip hop song play over the opening credits. This was the first techno hipster character with Theo, who's played winningly by Clarence Gilliard Jr. Oh my god, the quarterback is toast! It's the first time we heard cowboy lingo, capped with a certain 12 letter word. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki, motherfucker the first action hero to pay the price for not having footwear. Carl, she's fenster. Shoot the glass. And the first time we discovered a brilliant new use for holiday wrapping tape. Alan Rickman is what makes this movie special as much as anything. He's smart, ruthless, seemingly rational, and always in on the joke of this absurd situation that he has created. The following people are to be released from their captors. In Northern Ireland, the seven members of the new Provo Front. In Canada, the five imprisoned leaders of Liberté de Québec. In Sri Lanka, the nine members of the Asian Dawn. What fuck? I read about them in Time magazine. Hans Gruber is such an all-time movie villain, it's kind of a miracle that there hasn't already been an edgy origin drama, musical, or prequel trilogy already devoted to his character. I mean, think about it. We've had Wicked, Joker, Ratchet, Hannibal, Revenge of the Sith. Where is the Netflix origin series about young Hans and his traumatic upbringing? Virtually every character in Die Hard is memorable and engaging, from Hart Bachner's coked-up Ellis... Hans... Bobby, I'm your white knight. To Alexander Gudinov's witty and vengeful Carl. I want blood. You'll have it. But let Heinrich plant the detonators and Theo, prepare the vault. After we call the police, they'll waste hours trying to negotiate, and then you can tear the building apart looking for this man. But until then, we do not alter the plan. And if he alters it. To Al Leong's gunman with a sweet tooth. The plot is airtight and it's perfectly paced with not a wasted moment. The action sequences are inventive and there's just the right amount of characterization to give the film some real heart. Tell her that um, that she's the best thing that ever happened to a bum like me. She's heard me saying I love you a thousand times. She never heard me say I'm sorry. Now seriously, just try to picture 1980s Ford, Stallone, or Schwarzenegger delivering that same line, and you'll understand why Bruce Willis was such a perfect fit for this role. And that brings me to the categories. The first category would be Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. Like its entry in the category of Greatest Christmas Movies Batman Returns, this category is just an embarrassment of riches for Die Hard. So once again, like Batman Returns, I need to spread the wealth a bit. And by the way, check out that review for Batman Returns. First things first, you can't have a truly great Christmas movie without including some great Christmas music, right? Well, in this particular case, McTiernan chose to bookend this film with two very different but ideal holiday jingles. "'Twas the last night of Christmas. The McLeans have reunited, Nakatomi Tower is still standing, and not a creature was shooting nor detonating C4 explosives." Not even a mouse. And we all remember that immortal last line from Argyle. Repeat after me. If this is their idea for Christmas, I gotta be here for New Year's. And then, just as we see John and Holly kiss in the back of Argyle's limousine, we hear the opening horns kick in for Vaughn Monroe's Let It Snow. Yes, this is sort of ironic as the film takes place in LA, where it's usually around 65 to 70 degrees at this time of year, zero snow. But this needle drop just lands perfectly. Monroe himself was a very popular big band leader and baritone. You hear that deep baritone in full effect with this song during the 40s and 50s. He actually passed away 15 years before the release of this movie. But his legacy lives on with one of the great end credit needle drops. So good, in fact, that they used it again for the end of Die Hard 2 just two years later. Oh, the weather outside is frightful. But the fire is so delightful, and since we've no place to go, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. And wait, I did mention a hip-hop song playing during the opening credits, didn't I? Yep, I had originally thought that this was the first major studio movie to do so. Hip-hop really didn't become mainstream until around the mid-80s. But you actually had a few films before this, like Wildcats and Beat Street, which had hip hop songs playing during the opening credits. However, Die Hard was the first big budget film, and this song choice remains a modern classic. Straight out of Hollis, Queens, it's legendary hip hop trio Run DMC. The song is Christmas in Hollis, and we hear it just briefly during John's limo drive from the airport to Nakatomi Plaza. You mind if we hear some tunes? Hey, yeah, that'll work. Uh, Christmas music. It was December 24th on Hollis Avenue, the dark. When I see the man chilling with his dog in the park, I approached him very slowly with my heart full of fear. Looked at his. but just enough to set the playful fish-out-of-water tone, our hero John being the fish, for the action epic which follows. Die Hard also happens to have one of the greatest action scores of all time, from composer Michael Kamen, who not only crafts several exciting action beats throughout, one recurring theme has the brass section really kick in as the action ramps up. The track is called The Fight, and we first hear this during McLean's first time taking on the terrorists one-on-one this one being Tony, who has brought a machine gun. Wonder if that will come in handy. What makes Kamen's varied score even more unique is how he makes it feel seasonal at times, with sounds akin to jingle bells throughout. But the absolute musical highlight is that he also utilizes what is, in my opinion, is the greatest piece of classical music ever written, from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Ode to Joy. I just love this choice of music, even more so that it's used during the moment of triumph for our villains, even though it's short-lived. After breaking through six different electronic locks to get into the Nakatomi vault, Theo has finally opened that final seventh lock. With help from the FBI, of course. And as the vault slowly opens, a bright light comes out and shines on both Theo and Hans as they gape in awe. McTiernan gleefully films this as a celebratory moment, and Kamen's usage of Beethoven in this moment just nails it. It's gonna go. Go! That brings me to the next category, which would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, Die Hard is, for the most part, a very tight, expertly crafted action thriller, though with one flaw. And this flaw was actually pointed out by the late great film critic Roger Ebert in his review at the time. Now, as far as Roger Ebert was concerned, it was such a fatal flaw that it sunk the movie overall, and he gave it a negative rating. Now, even though I bow to Ebert, I respectfully disagree that it even comes close to sinking the movie. There were just so many other engaging characters in this movie, with the main protagonist and villain being top flight. But Ebert did have a point. The character in question is the main officer in charge of the LAPD response to this ongoing hostage situation. Lieutenant Dwayne T. Robinson, played by the late great Paul Gleason. And to be fair... Gleason was a perfect choice for this role. He had a nice run of playing entertaining jerks throughout the 80s in movies like The Breakfast Club and also Trading Places. And check out my review for that one, of course. In this case, however, this character is kind of poorly written. He's basically set up as a foil to not only make our hero John McClane look smart by comparison, but mainly to present the on-site officer who befriends John, and that would be Sergeant Powell, played beautifully by Reginald VelJohnson. Johnson, He's also there to make him look more heroic by comparison, as well. Gleason's Robinson is basically there just to say and/or do a series of stupid things so that others can call him out and/or embarrass him in response. And I'm not going to lie; some of these moments are quite entertaining, but there are just a few too many of them. And this is no fault to Gleason, who does what he can with this role. The character is just written as such a clueless moron that a few times it does slightly weaken the story and the suspense. Is that him? Yes, sir. Now, you listen to me, mister. I don't know who the hell you think you are or what you're doing, but you just destroyed a building. Now, we do not want your help. Is that clear? We don't want your help. I've got a hundred people down here, and they're covered with glass. Glass? Who gives a shit about glass? Who the fuck is this? This is Deputy Chief of Police Dwayne T. Robinson, and I am in charge of this situation. Oh, you're in charge? Well, I got some bad news for you, Dwayne. From up here. It doesn't look like you're in charge of jack shit. And that brings me to the trailer moment. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. Wow, where do I begin? Well, for one thing, I have to split this category into three parts, if I'm being fair. One trailer moment for the main protagonist, one for the main villain, and one for the assortment of characters who are just outside Nakatomi Plaza on the ground. Hey, seriously, I could just go... I could just easily go full-on Oprah here, if I'm not careful, for almost every main character. You get a trailer moment, and you get a trailer moment, and you get a trailer moment, but I won't do that. So let's start with Willis playing John McClane. His best moment, and fittingly, this was actually used as the capper, or the stinger, for the actual trailer for this movie, Yep, it has to be when he's moving through that ventilation duct about halfway through. Hans Gruber's goons are after him, especially Carl, and they're literally right near him at points. So if we're being honest here, it's kind of silly for him to be talking to himself in this metal duct, which can clearly carry sounds at a critical time when it would benefit him to be silent. But come on, it's just fun to hear Willis bantering with himself, and it's part of what makes McLean such a fun, relatable character. Come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. (laughs) Dinner feels like. <laughs> now, for the folks outside, there are just so many choices, but it's kind of obvious, isn't it? The officer on the ground who confesses to McLean about an incident early on in his career when he accidentally shot a kid, and he laments how he could never raise his gun again. It's Phil Johnson's Sergeant Powell, and he's just met McLean for the first time. We're talking about the ending of the movie now. They embrace like old friends, and all seems well, when suddenly... Carl's alive. He rises out of his body bag with a machine gun, no less? Yeah, how did that happen? It doesn't really make sense. But oh well, never mind. Let's just get back to the trailer moment. Well, guess who shoots Carl down in the nick of time in dramatic fashion? We hear some gunshots. We then see a fuzzy image of someone holding that gun. Who is it? It's Powell, of course. And now that third trailer moment for our main villain? Well, that actually brings me to the next and final category. And the final category would be MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Rickman was simply a revelation when this movie first came out. He had built up a strong reputation acting in British theater for years. And believe it or not, this was his very first on-screen role, and at the age of 42. And needless to say, he left quite the first impression. For me, his most standout moment comes early, during his interactions with Joseph Takagi, played by James Shigeta. As it turns out, there was a small orchestra at the office Christmas party, playing O to Joy from Beethoven, just as Hans and his merry band of terror, I'm sorry, thieves, crashed the party. So after selecting Takagi from the crowd, we then see them heading up an elevator, together along with Theo and Carl. And strangely, we hear Grouper humming Ode to Joy. He then compliments Takagi's suits, and smiles as he tells him that they share the same designer. The dude is just relaxed, sharp, jovial, and having a grand old time. In 30 seconds, we learn everything we need to know about this guy, and that he's going to be a tricky one to defeat. That's his trailer moment) <laughs> Nice suit. John Phillips, London. I have two myself. Rumor has it, Arafat buys his death. When this came out in 1988, we had just not really seen a villain like this before. Someone charming, but menacing. Literally the smartest guy in the room, but also one you could easily see hanging out with. It's why that vault opening sequence, later in the film with Ode to Joy, just works so well. We're almost rooting for this guy. Now, yes, Bruce Willis as a likable, relatable action hero was also a revelation when this came out. Up until this point in the 80s, he was just that smug, goofy guy from Moonlighting and those Seagram commercials. His John McClane was kind of a prototypical action hero himself. But let's just say that there's a larger field of great action heroes at this time than there were villains. But still, major props to Willis for pulling this off. And major, major props to John McTiernan for directing what is probably one of the five most influential movies of the past 40 plus years. I mean, seriously, we have had literal diehard clones for decades to come after this movie. McTiernan just directed the hell out of this thing. Tight pacing, good geography for the action sequences, nice usage of cross cutting in a few key moments. He gets good performances from his cast. This film is just beautifully made. But at the end of the day, The MVP is the late, great Rickman. As stated earlier, he created one of the greatest cinematic villains ever. Probably the best on-screen villain of my lifetime. And yes, I was alive for Hannibal Lecter, every cinematic version of The Joker, Darth Vader, and even Johnny Lawrence. Just kidding. I'm a big Cobra Kai fan, by the way. Everything about Rickman in this movie, the trimmed beard, the suit, the droll baritone voice, It all just works so well towards creating an iconic character. R.I.P. Alan Rickman, and happy trails. My rating for Die Hard would be 5 stars out of (laughs) 5. Die Hard has been a perennial Christmas rewatch for me for decades now, as it has been for so many others. Share it, celebrate it, and don't forget to leave some slippers out for Santa, just in case. And if you're looking to watch Die Hard, it's currently streaming on Peacock TV, Fubo, Roku, and IMDb TV. And that ends another shoeless review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast. And follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema.